were things about herbs. They were odd things. You know, they're not the things that herbalists would want to hear. What I learned is that there was always a few herbs that she completely loved. So I remember one time she had arrived at my house from a long travel with the worst case of shingles I had ever seen. We treated her entirely on her own. And I had all these great remedies that I wanted her to take that I thought would be so helpful. But she was very set on exactly what she wanted, which was cabbage leaf poultices and oatmeal baths. It was just such a teaching to me what we always say, you are not the one in control. It's the person who's ill. And we as healers are just to support and help. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Raven Hill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. My guest in this episode truly needs no introduction. Rosemary Gladstar's impact in the world of herbal medicine cannot be overstated, and it would be potentially easier to create a list of who she has not inspired and what she has not catalyzed than to do the opposite. For the last half century, plant medicine has been the center of her life, and she has been at or near the epicenter of the zeitgeist of the modern herbal movement. This interview was a pure joy for me to partake in as Rosemary's passion, compassion, and general zeal for life soar to emboldened heights. Now, as she settles into a new chapter of her life, she is drawing inward to find peace and healing and has empowered others to carry on her extraordinary herbal legacy. We talk about her full-time herbal practice for a patient of one, her elderly mother, and the relationships Rosemary has forged with her ancestors and elders. She takes us to the genesis of so many remarkable events and projects that still thrive today, many decades later, and have likely influenced you or plant lovers you know. And we talk about her many herbal books and the creative writing project that may still be to come. A gypsy by nature, Rosemary has traveled the globe in search of herbal connections and has taken hundreds of people with her to experience firsthand the wisdom of elders and nature. Many of these trips were in the belly of Gitano Brujo, the gypsy healer, a converted yellow school bus that for decades sallied from Western Canada to Mexico and all parts in between. While listening to this episode, you will certainly laugh, likely reflect on your path, and possibly even shed a tear or two. And we will probably all feel deep gratitude to this remarkable woman and what she has done for us and the plants we love. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with the incomparable Rosemary Gladstar. Hello, Rosemary, and welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you, Todd. I'm honored to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for doing this. I want to also recognize Margie Flint, our mutual friend who connected me with you. So thank you, Margie, for doing that. Now, Margie, as well as a host of other herbalists who I've had on the show, have cited you as one of their greatest inspirations and mentors along their journey to be herbalists and practitioners. What does that mean to you to hear that? Oh, what does that mean? Well, I take it as a great honor. Um, and it's a little amazing to me because so many of those very people are, I look at them as my teachers as well. So it's very mutual respect. 
we just learn from one another, right? <laughs> we do. And it sounds like you have been inspirational and pivotal in the careers of and just the passions of so many. So the work that you've done and continue to do has just touched the lives of countless people. And thank you for that. It's such a noble journey that you've been on. And I'm honored to have you here to talk to you today. Thanks. Yeah, it's been for me, it's just been an honor to serve the plants. You know, I think when you open up to whatever your passion is in life and you find what your purpose is, what your service is for being here, it just um, creates such inspiration and joy within yourself. Right. So um, and if you can turn that out to the world and possibly inspire others, it's I think it's part of that, the infinity circle, you know, it's really part of how we're meant to be on this planet. When we, when we do link into that, yeah, it may serve other people, but it definitely serves us. You know, we, we feel better, greater, wholer, more fulfilled because of that work. Mm -hmm. Now, the more I interview people and learn about the inner world, so to speak, of the influencers in herbal medicine, Again, your name continues to pop up and in many different areas that I, that I wasn't even aware of. Of course, I've heard of you. I'm very familiar with your books. And yet there's so much more <laughs> to Rosemary Gladstar than what some people just see on the surface. You've, you've worked on so many different projects and created so many things. What are you most passionate about today? Well, I... Yeah, I, I think the, the two things that I look at in my herbal work that I, I feel feel really um, great about and also I'm so passionate about is one of is the work of plant conservation of helping to turn attention to the need that the plants had for us to help preserve them as plant lovers, as, as an enormous plant community. And again, that message really came to me primarily through the plants. It wasn't like I intellectually thought about it. It was really just observing the plants and kind of hearing the forest speak to me and then turning around and asking my fellow herbalists, you know, is, is this a problem? Are you recognizing this? It seems to be. And all of them at the very same time that I was feeling this were feeling that as well. Um, so I feel really great about that work. I felt like you know, as an herbal community, uh, we had matured enough that we could look and see how we could be of service back to the plants that had been so abundantly gracious to us. And then the other thing is perhaps on a smaller scale, but in a very personal scale, but I feel still impassioned by this because I still feel it makes a difference in American herbalism, but certainly not like it did 30 or 40 years ago, is, oh, 30 years ago is when I brought Juliet de Berkeley Levy to the United States for the first time because I felt like she had had such an incredible influence on North American herbalism, but without people here really knowing that. The extent that her works and just her being had, even though nobody had really met her of my generation, even people older than me. Um, so breeding her here so people could meet the, this incredible woman who had such a great influence on them and on American herbalism, or we would say North American herbalism, and then also what it did for her life, because so many of our elders are not honored or remembered and their work is forgotten or it's forgotten who's carried that work on when herbalism wasn't important or you couldn't earn a livelihood. There weren't podcasts or classes or shows or anything, you know, it was just people quietly doing their work. 
and for me, it's a lineage. It's so important to carry that lineage on. And so being able to bring Juliet here so people could connect with her and she could be recognized. She could feel that her work was a value and was continuing to be a value. I feel really good with that. So I would say that those two things, I know it's not, it doesn't exactly address um, the question. So what it is I'm impassioned by right now. Um, I think partly why I'm looking retro, retrograde, looking backwards a little is that I'm sort of in this limbo place right now in my life right now where I'm not being driven forward by my passion or doing, but more just kind of receiving and being in a quieter space. So I don't have this strong passion that's, it motivated me my entire life, you know, where I was driven by these inner dreams and these seedings of visions that would come to me. But I, when I, where I'm at right now, it's more just, I purposely, so it's, it happened naturally and purposely for me where I'm more just quietly receiving and listening and, and not really looking to be motivated out in the world so much right now by, by passions that spark and move me. Why do you think this has come about, this urge to being more than doing? Well, part, it's in part a reflection, I think, of the busyness of my life for the last 50 or 60 years. Um, so I think it partly is that need, like the cyclic need we have of the inner and the outward. I just had a very long outward span of time. I always laugh and say that, you know, I'm actually an introvert who's been living an extrovert's life for the last 40 years. And so or 50 or 60 years almost. And and so I've kind of come to a place where there's a pause button, but it's, it also has to do with those cycles where when you reach your chip or your elder years, a lot of it is about going inwards and reflecting and doing the internal work that needs to be done before that last great cycle of end of life, right? So some of it has to do with that. Some of it has to do with I'm dealing with great tragedies in my life. And so that does require a lot of inner reflection and inner work and um, just a lot of self-healing, you know. So thankfully, I had already created a space of time and space around me that allows, that's been allowing me to do this work. And I'm also really focusing, like I say, I have my herbal practice is alive and thriving. I, I have full-time care of my elderly mother. She's 97 and I'm helping her at this stage of her life. She's She's moved in permanently with me so that I can aid her in the evening of her life process. So. 97. That's amazing. <laughs> it's remarkable. Yes, it's remarkable. And she's so zesty and full of life. She's in a remarkable, amazing woman. So it's a great honor. Yes. Oh, that's yeah. great. Oh, I would love to come back and talk about your relationship with her. You, you said a few things that I want to touch on, though, before I forget them. In this period in your life, when you're taking time to reflect inside and do some some healing work internally, have you carved out time or space in the past to do some of that? Or are these things that you're finding that the busyness kept pushing aside? And now that you're taking time to just be, that things are coming up that you haven't addressed? So one thing is I've always lived in wilderness. I've always, it, it, I had a very, very busy life and full life, which I love. Um, you know, like I always say, I never worked a day in my life. I was always doing everything that I loved. I woke up with joy to do it, but nobody could have kept that steam going. <laughs> it was a lot of, it took a lot of energy for certain. So what was my revitalizing force was I live in nature. I live in the wilderness. This, 
we just moved a couple of years ago to for the first time where I have neighbors that I could see on either side, right? We moved to a smaller location just because my husband and I are both elderly and we're just in a slowdown space, right? But, and caretaking our 500 acre retreat center was just over, became too much for us to do in a good way. So um, the wilderness has always been my source of inspiration, my source of revitalization. All I'd have to do is come home from another busy trip. I might be exhausted from the flight and the hours of teaching. I'd feel great, but you know, you just get tired on that schedule. And I could, you know, breathe in this fresh, fresh air and drink the waters from the streams and go hiking the, you know, miles and miles of trails out my back door. So, and my husband also loves wilderness. So whenever we take vacations, which we did every year, we would always go like Northern Maine. We live in the wilderness. So we just go, you know, where we drive for hours and hours up to like Northern Quebec, excuse me, up to Northern Quebec, and then take a boat, you know, five miles on up to a, a lake or a river to a little cabin that was completely remote. So that was how I always revitalized. So I would say that I definitely had time for, re for reflection, but it's a different kind of reflection when you're in the midst of your busyness than when you come to a space where you're um, kind of at pause, where you purposely are pausing. So it's different, but it was, yeah, I always felt rejuvenated by nature. Nature is my source and my mother and my, you know, my great connection to the great force of life. Absolutely. I think it is for everybody. Just a lot of people have had that connection disconnected and they're not sure how to plug back in. It's very easy to plug back in. You just go spend time in nature. <laughs> yes. Well, when I asked you about current things you're passionate about, you mentioned Juliet and this relationship you forged with her. How did that come about? <laughs> it's actually such a great story. It's a love story. I was uh, in my late teen years and I was trying to do some research projects on herbs. I was at our Sonoma County Library where I grew up and there weren't a lot of herb books at that time. What there was was usually cooking and culinary or cussing musties, you know, craft stuff, all lovely, but not what I was looking for. And I happened to come across, it wasn't in the herb section, but two books. Well, it was one that I can never remember which it was. So I always say both. So it was either Traveler's Joy or A Gypsy in New York. And I read that, that book and just absolutely fell in love. I fell into it, you know, it was beyond the words. It was like falling into the life of this amazing woman and all her words resonated with me, you know? So that's the magic of her writing. That's the magic of any really good herbalist or writer. You know, they just, you fall in and then you're hearing what you need to hear. It's being spoken to you through the words of some other individual. And that's what happened. So I sat down and I wrote this woman a long love letter, you know, telling her about my passion with plants and, you know, how I just love the herbs and the earth and, you know, healing and all of this stuff and animals. And, and then I sent it to her publisher in uh, London. Her, her publisher was a publishing company called Keats and her, and the official office, they had an office in Boston or in somewhere in New England, but her office was in London. So I sent it to London, never expecting to hear from her. And she wrote me back. She wrote me a very lovely letter back. And so for about maybe eight or nine years, we corresponded through mail. And then I, re I distinctly remember this. I was talking to a dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Swabel Brooks, who was also an admirer of her work. We were both like Juliet fans without ever having met her. And um, 
I said to him, we were in the parking lot of the California School of Herbal Studies, which was going strong at that, at that time already. And I said, you know, if we don't go and meet her soon, she's so old, she's going to die soon, right? You know, and I'm laughing about it because, I mean, I'm older than she is now at this point. <laughs> she was at that time, and I don't feel old, right? But, you know, she seemed ancient to me when I was in my late 20s. So anyway, so, um, and Srebo agreed with me. So we, I, I went ahead and organized a trip to go meet her. And I, in the, my typical fashion, I wasn't going to go alone. I was going to take off my friends who wanted to meet her too. So I organized what I would call my, eventually came to call plant, my plant lovers journeys, which ended up being travels around the world to meet herbalists but, uh, and indigenous healers. But that was our first. And so I had like 30 people on this trip. And wow. Yeah. And, and uh, we went over uh, and my mother was on that trip with me on that first trip. It was really amazing. She came with us and we went and met her at her home in Kithra. She lived in a little stone cottage, like a little one room, was two rooms, two tiny rooms, had no electricity or running water. It was by the Aegean Sea. And there was a little trail from her house, you know, through the little garden in the olive grove down to the ocean. And she would um, swim naked with us every, she would always swim naked in the sea every day. And we would all take our clothes off and swim with her. And <laughs> yeah, we stayed at the local farmer's house in these little tiny, you know, bedrooms. And yeah, it was just this fabulous, fabulous event. And and then eventually, after I moved to New England and I started the International Herb Symposium, I wanted to bring her to that conference. And so that's the first time I brought her was to the second, it was in 1992, to the second International Herb Symposium. And it was her first time being back in the United States since 1954. <laughs> mm. Wow. That's incredible. And then you, as you indicated, she went on to have quite a profound influence here and bringing her over to the symposium, did that help to spark? Well, her... it did. It did help to spark. But, you know, she already had had this influence through her books and her writings. So it was right. at a time when there weren't a lot of herb books. And her books were, were folkloric, for sure. But they were based on this amazing woman's experiences traveling around the world, learning from indigenous people whom she called gypsies. I know it's technically more popular to call them Romas. They called themselves gypsies, by the way, but okay. anyway, the Roma people. And the Native Americans, when she'd come to the United States in 1954, she came to study with Native Americans. She met Rolling Thunder on that trip, a new Rolling Thunder and a woman named Ocean of Fast Wolf. And just, um, you know, her, her life was about learning from these elders and these people who were using plants on an everyday ways of healing and just loving them you know i had such sacred relationships with them so her books had already had this major influence and i wouldn't say it was among all herbalists but there was definitely a large group of herbalists who were and and even though her work was really well known in the herbal world it was far more well known in the animal world so julie does credit with totally starting the natural movement of animal care you know holistic movement of animal care yes. and then all of the early books the Pitcairn books, any of the early books that were written before the, you know, before 1995, I would say, and maybe even up to 2000, um, they all credit her. You, she will be dedicated, or you'll notice in the acknowledgments. Now, since that time, again, the lineage gets forgotten. So, in those younger herbalists, or excuse me, the holistic, excuse me, veterinarians, or more recent books that are written, 
they're forgetting where that lineage came from. And that's all right, you know, I mean, it's okay, but it is, I think, really incredible when you do remember the lineage and the characters, these amazing people that carried them on. I mean, this right. was no ordinary human being. She was extraordinary in every sense of the word. <laughs> well, I actually have at least one, if not two, of her books on animal care that oh, yeah. we do refer to quite a bit. What is one of the more memorable experiences or more powerful lessons that you ever had with her or learned from her? Juliet? Oh, boy, I had... <laughs> um, well, there were so many, and there were, there were things about herbs. They were odd things. You know, they're not the things that herbalists would want to hear. Like one is, you know, and I've seen this not only with Juliet, I've seen it with several other herb, elder herb lovers that I know. My friend Tasha Tudor it was the same thing. That as Tasha got older, you know, and so much of the knowledge begins to diffuse again, you know, like it begins to diffuse in, in your mind and it becomes distant from you. So what I learned is that she went right, she was always a simpler. There was always a few herbs that she completely loved. She always said rosemary was one of her very favorite, but I know mugwort was as well. So I remember one time, um, and this does answer your question roundabout. I remember one time she had arrived at my house from a long travel She'd like come over from Europe or something and she was very exhausted and tired. And she had, she arrived with the worst case of shingles I had ever seen. And in an older person, it can be very devastating. She was in her late eighties at this time. And the shingles covered her whole body and we were very worried about her. I had a, a local doctor come out to the house, you know, to, to help me. Um, and of course she, she refused to go to the doctors or whatever. So we treated her entirely on her own. And I had all these great remedies like, you know, that I wanted her to take that I thought would be so helpful. But she was very set on exactly what she knew what she wanted, which was cabbage leaf poultices and oatmeal baths. And, and, and then in her drawer that she would sneak, she would have these chocolate covered maple creams and I would keep scolding her, Juliet, you can't be eating sugar with, you know, with shingles. And um, she would just look at me, you know, like, yeah, what do I know, right? <laughs> and, and she knew I was right, of course, but she would still do that. And I just, it was just such a teaching to me, what we always say, you, you know, you are not in the one in control. It's the person who's ill and just, you just help them. You do what they want. And, you know, I saw that with my friend Tasha too, as she became very elderly, like in her late eighties and early nineties that, you know, it wasn't about what was the, what I thought was the right thing to do it was what they needed, what they wanted. And that, you know, I might say, I might think something like, you don't want to put all that sugar in your black tea, you know, but that sugar at those old ages provides them that pure energy that they might need. You know, it gives them just that, like a honeybee. It's just giving them that little bit of energy. Yeah, I might think that it should be honey, but, you know, these are really old people that live long lives. So that was, you know, just a humbling experience for me that I'm just there to serve them. And I might make suggestions, they never would follow them. <laughs> because mm -hmm. one of the things also is that they had very strong, these were very strong people, you know, with very strong senses of what they wanted and needed. And so, yeah, it was always very humbling to be in that role of servant to these elders. I played it well. I was like their chauffeur and their servant and, you know, carried their baskets and books, tried to keep their papers in order. You know, it wasn't like I was some grand herbalist for them. Juliet <laughs> <laughs> used to say about me when we'd stand in these huge circles and I would be, you know, hundreds of people and I'd be introducing her, she'd go, my, my, look at what that young slip of a girl has done. 
referring to me. <laughs> so I've actually used that same phrase just out of adoration to young people, you know, some of my young students who have just done amazing work. I'll go, oh my my, look at that what that young <laughs> person has done. Oh, <laughs> uh, so you brought her to present at the second International Herb Symposium, and you just had completed yesterday the Herb Symposium, didn't you? Yes, but I am not the, I gave up uh, organization of it two times ago, and gratefully, okay. it was passed on to United Plant Savers, which is exactly where it should be, because United Plant Savers was started there in 1994, so, um, and it it really is. It was always been a major fundraiser. I mean, most a big section of the money that came in went to UPS, and uh, a lot of there was. It was a very broad spectrum of topics and teachers that came, but there was always a big focus on plant conservation, preservation, and cultivation at that event. Okay, I just went onto the website right before we popped on, and I saw the keynote this year is Diana Beresford Kroger. Turns out she was our keynote speaker at our very first ever graduation ceremony at Pacific Rim College. Oh, how fabulous is that? Which was a complete fluke. I believe I was connecting with Nancy Turner, and I think she was planning to be or hoping to be. Something came up last minute, and she sent Diana in her place, which was such an honor for us to have her there. Really? an amazing woman. Yeah. Really, I would say how incredible. Yes. Yes, it was amazing. So you just mentioned United Plant Savers as if it just, it just shows your humbleness because, of course, that's an organization that you started, didn't you? Or you were at least the founding president of? Yes, I would say I seeded the idea, but it really took a, um, a large group of very dedicated, committed individuals to really start it. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was um, I, I brought the people together. I, I asked the questions. I helped i helped form the group but it was really the dedicated effort of a lot of people that created the organization that it's become right and what is that organization focused on the name obviously says a lot but Uh, yeah they always wanted to change the name right so many times it's come up like you know through different board when we've had different boards it's come up over and over again it's a little bit plant hugging. And I always say, yeah, it's absolutely, totally plant hugging. That's what this organization is. It's an organization of plant huggers. So, um, and also it got its name, I'll answer your question in just a minute, but it got its name because of a very particular reason, because back in the you know early 1970s and stuff, when we were just starting to teach and starting classes and you know starting our herb stores and stuff, the issues weren't about conservation and preservation. I mean, we were just happy to get herbs, right? And we would we didn't even really know about quality, you know, like what is the difference between a really great quality herb and a bad herb, or, and certainly not about the ethics of where these plants were coming from. And it was some of the early teachers, specifically Ed and Sarah, and Sarah Katz and Ed Smith, who used to go around to our early gatherings, and they would have a little chart, and they would show the plant, they were city herbalists who'd moved to the country, right? And they'd started growing their own plants. And they would say, look, here's what these plants look like when we grow and dry them ourselves. And they were like vivid and green and beautiful. And here's what we're selling in the herb stores, right? And they were dried. And he used to say, Ed Smith used to go, you know, we're like a bunch of UPS herbalists. We think the plants are grown in the UPS truck. They're shipped to us and then we send them out. <laughs> and it sounds so funny now, but you know, that's, the, we're talking about like, what, almost 50 years ago, right? 
when even the word organic, which is used like commonly today, that, that word was just being defined. You know, it was just, it had just been defined and what it meant. And so years later, like 30 years later, when we're looking at, yes, we've been successful and herb books are being written and shops are happening and people are actually making successful little businesses. We were looking at, yes, this was all very exciting, but we engendered a very unique and new set of problems. And that's just like, where were these plants coming from? And so that's why I said, we should not be like UPS herbalists. We need to be United Plant Savers, right? And so we, that's the reason I'm attached to that name. Plus, I think it really is a good name. But anyway, <laughs> so that organization is strictly, I mean, its mission is clear. It's just about preserving, cultivating, and about the cultivation, excuse me, it's about the conservation and preservation and cultivation of medicinal plants so that they're here for future generations of plant lovers for certain, but more importantly for the earth herself. And it's not as some people perceived against wildcrafting at all, but just looking at what our wildcrafting efforts are doing to the plant communities. Are they making them healthier and stronger and more vital? Or are we depleting our plant sources in our hunger to make medicines? Are we loving them to death, I, would, I might say. And so, yeah, that's, what that, that's really what this organization is about. And it's done fantastic work for a little organization. It's like the little engine that could, right? Mm. It's done amazing work. <laughs> and have you gotten any closer to that answer regarding wildcrafting? Are we doing good or are we loving plants to death? Well, I think we're doing better, uh, definitely, you know, and, and the fact that it, that wildcrafting and plant conservation is part of the discussion among herb schools, it's part of the education among herb companies, you know, they, they, they still will put on their bottles proudly wildcrafted, but if it's a plant that's at risk or has any kind of indication that's endangered, it, they're, they're more proud to put on that it's been organically cultivated. We see far more farmers uh, herb farmers as well as regular farmers cultivating these plants. So that's definitely shifted. Are we out of the, you know, danger zone? No, of course not. You know, it's, it's a, it will always require diligence and thought. I don't think we'll ever be out, you know, as humans, we just have an, the overzealousness to, and non-thoughtfulness about how we use natural resources. So, um, Certainly in our generation, in our time, we will always need to be mindful of this. At least as mindful as all the other stuff we teach about proper dosaging and, you know, what herbs to use for what body systems. And, you know, I think this is probably one of the most important aspects that herbalism has to focus on right now. I think that's our main task of healing is healing the earth first, and then we heal human beings as part of that, you know. Yes. It's impossible to be a healthy human population without a healthy animal, plant, earth population. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And on that note of conservation, another thing that you've done is started Sage Mountain. And is that what you moved when you mentioned moving a couple years ago from your 500 acre? Yes, Sage I Mountain? did. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up in Northern California and in uh, started an herb school there, the California School of Herbal Studies in a beautiful little valley called Emerald Valley. And I moved and if, from there. Oh. And if I, if I heard correctly, when you were talking about your experiences with Juliet, 
you connected with her when you were in your late teens, and then eight years later, you went to visit her, and sometime in between, you had started this herb school that was thriving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in your early 20s, you started a... I think it was in... So in 19... In 19, I'm never super good with dates, but I have this. In 1972, I opened my first herb store, Rosemary's Garden, which is still thriving. It's still in wow. there. Yeah. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? In the little town that I grew up in. And then, um, and I think it was in like 1982, maybe. So I was maybe in my late 20s when I opened up the um, California School of Global Studies. Wow. Good for you. And it's been thriving ever since. It's a really well-known really? school. Like it's considered like the longest running herb school and one of the better. We have good yeah. schools and it's one of the better. Yeah. Well, sorry uh, to interrupt. You were speaking of that in, in Sage Mountain. Yeah. And so then when I moved to Vermont, um, which I moved kind of sight unseen, I'd never been to Vermont, but I moved to this wilderness area in a little two-room log cabin and you know, I, there wasn't a lot happening with herbalism. There was a wonderful elder herbalist named Adele Dawson, who I became very close friends with. And there may have been one, other, oh, Susan Weed was teaching in upstate New York, um, but there just wasn't a lot happening. But what I noticed was that, that there was herbalists doing work, but they were all kind of working independently of each other. And so it's always been just kind of, I think, a natural indicate. I love people and I love bringing people together. So that was one of the things just like started hosting little events and bringing people together. And we started the Northeast herb association and which is still going strong. And then I, and then we, we were living on this 500 acre property that was all wilderness. It, it abutted, it abutted about 80,000 acres of wilderness. So it's just uh, one of the largest green belts in Vermont. And I recognize the importance of that, you know, just that statement alone of how unique and amazing this land was. And my, you know, I was still in the midst of my teaching career. So I started a little, started teaching classes and then started a, what we called Sage Mountain. Uh, it was like a wilderness retreat center for people and plants and animals, you know, Sage Mountain Botanical Center and um, Herbal Retreat Center. Yeah. Oh, it sounds magical. <laughs> it, it is so magical. And I'm so grateful to say that my, my incredible friend, Emily Ruff, who's a brilliant herbalist and just an amazing visionary. She holds that same vision of keeping Sage Mountain as a wilderness retreat center, and she's stewarding the land now. So mm. huge project. So if anybody wants to help her, just contact her out there. <laughs> Where did the name come from? <laughs> oh yes, well, it, so the there's a <laughs> it's that mythological. The mountain is the sage, by the way. So it's that mytho, mythological idea that on the mountain, you know, the, the mountain and the nature holds that sage wisdom and that people would come to this land for the teachings. I mean, they would, I laugh oftentimes that they thought they were coming to study with me, but really it was the wilderness and the land and the plants and the tenacity of nature. And that was in part why that place became so well known. You know, so many people would come who really hadn't had that wilderness experience. I mean, we see moose wandering by and bear and, and yet it was safe. You know, they felt safe there, mostly. <laughs> Sometimes they, they were always safe, but mostly they felt safe. Sometimes they would sleep in the yurt or the teepee, you know, cause it was like a little scary for them to sleep out in their tents. But, um, but it, there was an enormous safety, uh, feeling of peace and safety and oneness with nature there. So yeah, the Sage Mountain. 
Mm, sounds so nice. Tell me more about the plant lovers' journeys. Oh yeah, because that also sounds wonderful. It was. They were the actually my funnest things to do. They were the things that was the hardest for me to give up. You know, to stop doing. I started them as I said when I was in um, California. The first one being the one to Greece, and um, and then I just love the idea of travel. I'm, I'm a, a gypsy or a gypsy at heart, and. Um, I've always loved traveling. And so what better way to travel than with friends and to go to exquisite places and meet other herbalists, especially herbal elders, whatever we could, see herbal gardens. So was, I always advertise them, I position them you know, as part vacation, part spiritual pilgrimage, because we always were connecting with the land in a spiritual way and really trying to bring sacredness and create sacredness wherever we went. And then also part, herbal pilgrimage, you know, herbal journey. Um, and originally when I would go, I would teach as part of them. But then as time went on, it's like I laughed because everywhere we went, there were such amazing teachers and people to learn from. And they could always, people could always study with me in the States. So I really, I would take people to study with other herbalists. And as I said, ideally with elders as much as we could, though we also met with, you know, younger people, people of all ages. And in the years that I did, I did it for about 35 or maybe 40 years, but we visited over 28 countries, some many times. Wow, that's incredible. Yes. Went to Southeast Asia, Ecuador, South America, you know, Europe. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Always with groups of, you know, 25 or 30 people. We were always pretty big groups. And I always felt like sometimes we traveled when Americans were not being well received in other parts of the world, you know, and we were acting out strangely and people always <laughs> worried. And I would say, no, this is a really, really good time for us to travel because we can we can be living examples of that people are good wherever they are, you know. Like right now, I know everybody was upset and and boycotting everything coming from Israel. And I I keep thinking, you know, they're it's so unfair because there are really good people in Israel who are trying to do really good things and to boycott all the herbalists or all the growers in Israel doesn't really support those people who are trying to do the best work. But sometimes of we're course. so blinded by what we think. I call it the greenwashing of the social justice movement. You know, they're in such important issues, but sometimes we're not realizing that we're hurting the very people that we need to support. And it would be, I use this as an example. I mean, America is very bad mannered right now. We have a very bad reputation, understandably, in uh, many parts of the world. And yet you, there are so many people in this country who are working so hard to do good things. So to just boycott all American products or all Chinese products or, you know, whatever, without being very thoughtful about what we're doing, doesn't make a very good statement. You know, you leave, you leave those people behind barbed wires, you know, who might need a helping hand to get out from behind that very difficult situation right and of course the greatest change comes from within in any ecosystem and so whether that's the human body or a country or or larger than that so by boycotting as you say these people on the inside who just happen to be there because that's where they were born and really have good intentions then we're really we're hurting our cause more than helping it if you ever feel that you want to start up these plant lovers journeys again because you miss them so much, let me know because I'd love to go along with you. <laughs> yeah, I just might. You know, I should tell you the, the very first ones that we did was 
when I was still at the California School of Global Studies, I always had this dream, right, of, of having like a horse and cart and going up the coast and having all these herbal products and teaching as I went, right, with my students. But of course, that wasn't going to happen because it was just beyond, you know, it was it, the era wasn't right. But what we ended up doing actually was buying this beautiful yellow school bus that we named Gitano, Gitano Brujo, the gypsy healer, and a little <laughs> blue trailer, which was called Out of the Blue that we cooked in. And we started doing these trips. This was back in the early 19 or mid 1980s. We started doing these trips to Baja every winter. We would go down to Baja and camp there for three to four weeks. This was before anybody else was there. We would go down to the lagoons where the whales would come down to give birth. Oh, so we would wow. be the only people there. And now that's very popular and everybody's there. And we would camp with our students for two to three weeks, right? And have everything we needed with us. We had all our food, all our water, because we'd equipped this bus with huge water tanks. And, you know, it was just amazing. We had a dome tent that we would put up. <laughs> and then we'd have these little boats that we would go out, little kayaks and and canoes that we would go out and sing to the whales and the mom, the moms would come with their babies and then we'd jump in the water and swim with the whales. And we did that for a number of years. We also traveled to Canada with our with our school bus and our um and our little kitchen trailer. And then we also went to Mexico. We went to um, Grand Canyon and Death Valley. We did a lot of trips. <laughs> and even after I left, my good friend and partner of that time, Daniel, he loved those trips and he kept the bus. And he continued to, to do those bus trips, usually through universities. Universities would hire him to take the university students. He continued, and that bus ran until about three years ago. It's now retired. Really? Yes. It's there, and it's Daniel's office. But there it is, Gitano Brujo. Yeah. <laughs> they were extraordinary wow. trips, actually. Yeah. They were, they were like some of the funnest things I've ever done in my life, and I've done a lot of fun things. <laughs> uh, it it just sounds like an entirely different era to hear you talking about that. I couldn't even imagine trying to put something like that together today with all the logistics and insurance and liabilities. Oh all that stuff I don't think I ever even thought about. Oh, it's so God. magical. I would like pray every time we were in like really like, you know, like this one time when what twice it happened when the boats went up on the back of the, the whales. It's like, oh, dear God, please don't let anybody get hurt. And nobody did get hurt, but that second time it happened, that, that was right before I left. And it was the last time I went, I took groups down to Baja. It's just, it became, I took it as a message from the whales because also at that time, more and more people were starting to come, mostly the universities. And so it was kind of like, I think it's time. I think we've had our magic here. Yeah. We have been to the whales. We've let them know we're peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious with that very first trip when you showed up at Juliet's doorstep, did she know you were bringing 30 people with you? Well, she knew I was bringing a group and <laughs> she would only, you know, she would only meet with us a couple of times during the day. Like we would go swimming with her and, you know, we would help her with work. There were things that we were doing there, but at night, it was always in the evening time, we'd build a fire. We'd all sit around the campfire and she would tell us stories and, you know, just lots of stories of her life and travels and yeah, and we were there. David Hoffman, by the way, was 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 with us on that trip. Really? Wade Crawford. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> oh, incredible. Well, let's back up a bit because you've done so much, and we haven't even we've barely scratched the surface on all the things that you've had a hand in seeding or starting. I want to hear how all of this began for you what was childhood like or that 
inspired you so much with plants or did it happen in much later in life that you became inspired? Well, it couldn't have been that much later, <laughs> but um, I'm just curious if this journey and I also I have a feeling your mom was part of that experience and that inspiration. So if you could tie that in, if there's anything there as well. Well, it was actually my grandmother in the okay. way, kind of in the traditional way. It's oftentimes the grandparents who have passed that on because the parents are so busy, you know, just with the daily task of feeding and raising and cleaning and all of those things. So in traditionally, and of course it's done in every, all different ways, but usually it was passed down. We would say in the olden days, it was usually, the lineage was usually passed down from the grandparents to the grandchildren. Um, and so I grew up on a small dairy farm in Northern California in Sonoma County. It's very rural. It was very, you know, very uh, diverse farms. My, my father was a dairy farmer. And um, so we were just surrounded by fields and grass and plants. And, and it, Sebastopol, where I grew up, Sonoma County is an incredibly plant lush area. So I felt like I was seeded from birth, you know, from the moment I could see and open my eyes. I mean, everything around me was beautiful and green and lush. And then I also had a grandmother who was a survivor of the Armenian genocide. And she, she and my grandfather actually met in the death march and, or shortly thereafter, you know, when they were just trying, you know, uh, survivors were just starting to congregate together and find families and stuff. And she was, of course, very impacted by that her entire life. But she used to tell us when we were children growing up, it was her faith in God because she was a deeply, deeply religious woman and her knowledge of the plants that saved her life. And so she, she really was an herbalist, but it was in the old sense of the word. You know, people didn't call themselves that. They used plants because it was familiar medicine. It was what they had. You know, this was in the 1918s, 1918. She came to this country right before, it was like between 1923 and 1924. And so, um, yeah, she just, it wasn't like she signaled me out. It wasn't like it was recognized, I don't think. But um, so, you know, we'd be in the garden and she'd be weeding. But instead of the plants going into the compost pile, most of them went into the basket that came into the house. And then she would prepare those plants, mostly it's food. When I first started teaching, like, you know, when I was in my very, very early 20s, I would, my grandmother was still very much alive and I would bring her to my classes and I'd have her make her herb stews and she would serve the students. And when she got really old, like right when she was near the end of life, I would take her to the herbal conferences. And it was just, I have pictures of her when she's just like this little tiny, you know, she's just like a shadow, right? Feather on the breath of God, ready to ascend. and my students are carrying her to the hot baths and putting her in the hot pools. It's like very moving and touching. My mother's at that stage now, which maybe makes it even more moving and touching. So, you know, I grew up kind of with this familiar and also because my parents were dairy farmers and incredibly poor, um, like many, many rural poor families, they used herbal medicine, not out of choice, not because it was cool or groovy or the thing to do, or even necessarily that they believed in it. I mean, I, I'm sure they did, but they used it out of necessity, right? And so I've, I always proudly say that as a family of five children growing up on a farm, my parents only twice had to take us to the doctors. Once was when my older sister fell off her horse and broke her hip. And the second was when my baby sister swallowed rat poison. I'm great. I'm grateful to Ooh. say that both of them survived, <laughs> went on to be, become beautiful adults. 
So it was just a natural inclination. I felt the plants speaking to me from when I was a little child, you know, and it, it was encouraged, not discouraged. It was like, you know, and so I think that's the thing. So many of us have those messages coming in when we're children, you know, we're antennas for the earth. We are sense organs for the earth. So those messages are pouring in, but we're redirected. And I was never redirected. I mean, they might've tried to redirect me, but you know, I was five, one of five children and my parents were both working so hard. And so they didn't have a lot of a time to redirect me. So I kind of grew up following that path. And really it was pretty strong in me when I was young because like my first subjects I remember that I did in seventh and eighth grade were wild plant identification and Native American uses of plants. It was the Mo Mohawk, or Mohawks and one of their tribe that lived in Sonoma County. So it was studying how they use these plants um, that were growing around us. And somewhere I still have those books. I don't know where they are that I put together. They're in some pile of junk somewhere in my mom's house, but um, yeah. And so, and then I think the last part of that story was, is that, you know, I was just reaching adulthood in the 1960s when the Back to the Earth movement hit the world, hit the United States. And so I was part of that, you know, I got caught up and for me back to the, back to the natural world was going far out to the wilderness. So I just went, you know, I went to Washington, which my parents had gone to a lot when we were children and spent a lot of time backpacking and living in the woods in the wilderness, learning from old people, elders there and some native elders who would teach, you know, and teaching being they would just share with you what they knew. Everybody was readily sharing information and we were just happy to be sharing. We were happy to hear people who wanted to learn, you know, and wanted to share information. So there was a tremendous amount of sharing in those days, open-hearted, willing sharing. It was quite beautiful. And did you yeah. know then during those travels and during those teachings that you were learning from elders, did you know that this was your path in life? Um, well, I don't, so I, I'm not sure that I ever, even to this day, <laughs> ever determined exactly when that happened. Yeah, I think it happened. I think I do know when it happened is well, I came back from those trips. I had been camping out um, and staying with friends actually up in Canada on the, in the Canadian Rockies, right across from the Bugaboo mountain range. I spent a winter there. And when I was there, I had this dream of getting horses and riding back because horses were another big passion of mine all through my, all through my life really. And I wanted to get horses and ride back on the Pacific Crest Trail to Canada. And so I went back to California and got a job working as a cleaning lady actually in the, the Greenville Natural Food Store, which had a small herb section. This part of the story is probably critical. And, and I was cleaning after hours and I'd clean the toilets and the sinks and stuff, but I had a fairly good knowledge of plants by that time and it was recognized. So they rehired me to, to run that little herb section. So I worked and got money, got the horses. In the meantime, I had fallen in love and decided I didn't want to spend years riding back on the Pacific Crest Trail. So I still did the horse trip. I rode for four and a half months. I got as far as Northern California and wow. I came back. And it was in that horse trip that I got it, that I had been kind of living this life of grace, you know, just receiving so much. And I wanted to give back to my community. And so I came back, it was, I was 22 years old. It was 1972. And that's when I opened that herb store at Rosemary's Garden and just started sharing the little that I knew with others. You know, I didn't know a lot, you know, this is back in the 1970s, but 
I was always open to sharing and, you know, trying to learn more and provide opportunities for people to learn and myself to learn as well. So. What yeah. was it about that horse trip? Pardon? What was it about that horse trip you think that's catalyzed or crystallized this for you? Well, I had a dream. Mm. <laughs> I had a vision. Please that, tell. Well, it was, it was really just that, that it was just that I had this vision that, you know, I was, receiving all of this for a purpose and that we have you know our purpose is to be of service here on this earth and if we find that purpose and we connect to it then everything flows through us and so i i just followed that through i came back and i had i've always always i mean like when if people ask me how i did so much it's just i've always had such support i i've done i could never have done anything without the support of others, you know, they they saw potential and they would jump in. So I had fabulous support at that time. I was with a um, a partner, my my good friend Drake Sadler, and and um, he when I said to him I wanted to open herb store, he said great, and then he just got right in and helped me do it. <laughs> you know, I mean that's how it's always been, and the same with the you know it was in those early days of the herb store that we started traditional. We started that tea company, traditional medicinals. Which believe me, I had no idea of starting a company. I was just creating formulas for my community, but they happened to be really good formulas. And Drake was a really good businessman and there weren't any other medicinal tea companies. So he said, well, let's, he was, he was an astrologer, a fabulous astrologer. And he was making these beautiful astrological calendars. And every fall he'd take them up. He'd just drive up and down the coast and sell them. So he said, well, let's take some of your tea blends. Cause I was putting them in little packages. And uh, he'd call me up and he'd go, oh my God, we've got like an order for five of those and six of those. And you better keep making, you know, make more blends. So I'd go up after the hours after working in the store, I'd go up and blend more herbs and package them. And so that's how the tea company started. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> Another one of these things that you've helped launch. It's incredible. Both Guido Massey and Ann Arbrecht spoke very, speak very oh. highly of traditional medicinals and Drake. Yes. Uh, wow, what a... Amazing company, actually. I'm very yes. proud. That's incredible. Good for you. And now you I, are. I do oh, need sorry. to say that I, you know, it's really good for the company because I, I had really after about the first 10 years of running it, I didn't want to run a big company. So I stepped out. So it was really, um, I had, I've had very little to do with how that company has maintained integrity. I helped to build a foundation, but I would credit mostly Drake and everybody who came, who followed in doing that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, important. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take credit for things I haven't done. <laughs> I'm sure you did a lot. I'm sure you did. Well, thank you for sharing that early life journey. I just got to ask out of curiosity, is is Rosemary Gladstar your birth name? Well, Rosemary is my name. So I was okay. named after my two grandmothers. Well, I had one grandmother whose name was Rosemary, but she suggested to my mother that she named me Rosemary, but it was to be named after both grandmothers. And Gladstar is my hippie name from the 60s, actually. Oh, I love it. Where did that come about? It came about, well, it was when I was living with Drake and I had a beautiful little boy, Jason. And so we decided that we would be the Star family and I would be Gladstar and Drake was Drake Donstar and Jason was Jason Moonstar. And we <laughs> kept those names. I mean, I always kept them. Um, I never, I changed it legally in the sixties. So I've had that name since then. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> and now you have the science and the art of herbalism. 
which is one of these other things that you've created that is inspiring and teaching so many. Can you talk a bit about what it is and what you're doing? Yeah, you know, I started a home study course uh, back in the early 1980s. It was actually 1980 when I wrote it, when I wrote the first edition of it. And I started it simply because in those days, it was very challenging for people to study herbalism, you know, and we were running this amazing herb school and it had programs year round and lots of different programs for advanced and beginners. We had weekend events and, you know, week-long events and eight-month programs and, and people were coming from all over the country, but it was very, very challenging. And so I thought it would be really great to create a course um, because there weren't any other correspondence courses. There was one that was taught by a wonderful course by Dominion Herbal College in Canada, but that yes. was the course, other course there was. So I, oh, and Dr. Christopher had a course, a, a beautiful course uh, that was more about Mormon philosophy, but there was a lot about herbalism in it. Um, and that book actually was edited down. That course was edited down to become the School of Natural Healing, which is a really good volume. Um, some some of his fellow students took out a lot of the Mormon philosophy, and which was fabulous and interesting, by the way, but it wasn't really in, of interest to herbalists. So, so I wrote this course and, um, you know, have just run it. Of course, it's been updated and my son put it on, he about 12 years ago, put it online for me and then helped me run it for many, many years. Um, and of course it's, you know, it's fun for me now, especially because it's pr the primary way I'm teaching is through the course. We've had, I don't know, in the last, since 1980, I think we've probably had hundreds of thousands of students. I have no idea, you know. Really? And, yeah, we've had so many students graduate from it. And, you know, in the age of, in, of the internet and of speed learning, it's a little bit of a challenge for a lot of people because it's really designed to take people deep into the heart of herbalism. It's not a simple read-through course. It's like, I mean, people can do that, but they won't get a certificate. If you want the certificate, you have to do all the projects and hands-on things. So it's basically based on my eight-month program that I taught at the herb school. And it's, ba it's based like that was you'd come to school and you'd have several sessions during the day with different teachers and they would cover different things. So there'll be a lesson on the body system and herbs for those and then preparation and then wild plant identification, got on a walk and then just something fun that's or spiritual, you know, that's just a kind of, uh, you know, would be an aside and then a guest teacher. So, and there's lots of, on the online, there's, we still offer what we call the classic printed course because there's still a lot of herbalists who don't like working online or who are online all the time and would prefer to have this big volume. It's a little over 500 pages. Um, and then we have the online version, which is has a tremendous amount of more context, but is based on the same 10 lesson format. And then you can, and a lot of students will do both, which is the most ideal because you have the printed course and the online course. So, yeah, and I have a fabulous friend. And we have a wonderful staff of people. We have um, a number, there's like probably 12 people who help me run it. And I have a woman who is the educational director, my good friend, Helen Ward, who's been instrumental in helping to run the course. One of the things that makes the course unique is that we still do mail-in or email and homework and we still review everybody's homework in depth. <laughs> and I still do all, I still do every single final lesson. I'm a little, always a little, wow. but I review every single final lesson of my students. <laughs> wow. Yes, that That's is. A it's, a, it's a work of love. <laughs> and but, then do you do live teaching 
in part of that course? Uh, well, not so much. The teaching is mostly through the videos. We, we are going to start it. I've been, as I said, this last couple of years, I've been um, not doing so much outward. So we are going to start it. We're going to start doing Zoom calls with my students. And then I'll start possibly doing the classes. But they get so much contact. I mean, I have so many, so many classes that are posted up there that no no one person could possibly take them all. So they're my classes and other teachers' classes who've been online because we always have guest teachers. I mean, so there's unbelievable amounts of context on the online course. So, yeah. Sounds incredible. And you just mentioned, and I, I want to circle back to this, you mentioned now that you're not doing so much externally. What does it look like for you now that you are being more internally? Do you have any sort of practices that you resonate with or I'm just curious what well, that might my look like. Intention, my intention that I really set out very clearly was I wanted to spend more time with the plants, personal time, you know, just with them, gardening, walking, you know, hiking and stuff, being out in the wilderness again, and more time with my family and friends. Um, and so, you know, that's, but then COVID started, we had COVID and then my mom is here. And so that, that definitely changes everything because that does require most of my energy right now is, as I said, I have a full-time 24 yeah. seven herbal practice in going on. So, uh, and I'm grateful for it, but it's, yeah, it looks a little different. You know, everything always looks a little different than we imagine. So we always have to be flexible and ready to jump at any opportunity. I always say, you know, always want to say yes to any opportunity life offers you. And so even, especially in things like this, it may not be what we anticipated, but uh, yeah, it's important and necessary and I'm honored. So, yeah. So that's, mm. yeah, that's really what it looks like right now. <laughs> and in this so-called full-time herbal practice, are you basically treating your mom with herbs for whatever comes up? Yeah, well, as much as possible, we do, you know, so of course, um, and she, she's really on just one medication right now. She, my mother never took much pharmaceutical medication, actually, even for her age. I mean, most, most of the time when people are her age, they're on so many, but she was, she was, she's maintained health and vitality. And I, I mentioned this as farm people, they were very self-reliant and always pretty much, you know, trying to use what they had. So, um, but we do have to use pain medication on her. So she has been using pain medication, strong pain medication, as little as possible, but as much to keep her comfortable. And so for all of the other things, I'm using herbal stuff, you know, so they, they're simple things like she sleeps with her mouth open now, so her mouth gets very dry. So herbal sass on her mouth. I use all kinds of herbal potions and oils and stuff on her body to keep it lubricated. But I'm, I was talking about older people having a mind of their own. And so we always imagine, you know, that we, you know, I was saying this, there's probably a lot I could do to help my mom's situation now, if I could get her to ingest herbs, but that's just not going to happen. You know, you're not going to get a person who's 97 to swallow herb pills. It's very, very challenging for them to do that. And they're most, most of them are not, even somebody like Julia who loved bitter herbs, she loved mugwort and artemisias, but that was kind of the story I was trying to tell about the time with shingles is that, you know, I, I wanted to give her these bitter herbs that would be helpful. And there was just no way she was going to pull open her drawer and eat that chocolate covered maple. <laughs> and so I mean, really right now getting my mother to eat anything is a problem. So 
we've, we've been juicing for her. That was my niece's idea and that's been working really well. But so the things that I know could be helpful, the body sort of starts to say, no, no, thank you. And there's a reason for that. I think we have to trust that. So yes, we're, I'm using, you know, I, I've always been of the inclination that uh, the person, their individual is always the one who's should be making the decisions. And we as healers are just to support and help them and give suggestions by all means, but not to force things down them or and, and it wouldn't work anyway. So, um, so I just, yes, I'd love to be giving my mom all kinds of medicinal mushrooms right now. And, uh, you know, there's a number of things, but it's not going to be, she won't take them. So I'm right. doing everything that is I can to keep her comfortable and happy and using the herbs, of course, because that's where I, my natural trust and inclination and belief goes. I just love working with the plants. Otherwise, I'd use things from a drugstore, but no, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and for the pain, are there any remedies in the herbal pharmacopoeia that could help yes yeah definitely like i've always been i've always felt it's very important to keep opium poppy on hand right i was going to ask about that yeah yeah definitely and but and the, how do you use that as a tincture you'd okay. use it as a tincture but i'm not using that for my mom i'm using actually the, the medication and morphine for her okay. and it, because of the i couldn't get her to take a tincture there's this no way that i would be able to do that where this is tasteless so i can put it in a little juice and have her drink it yeah. mm -hmm. But I've always, this... I've always, it's to me, like ever since the California School of Herbal Studies days, it's like, if you know how to work with it, it's really great to have it. And I've always used it as a tincture, you know? Yes. And is the morphine, the medication that you speak of, the only medication she's on? Yes. Okay. And that, did you in part choose that because it is a pure form of other opioids such as OxyContin, et cetera? Well, so the doctors actually recommended another another tablet for her, and it gave her a lot of anxiety. First of all, it was hard for her to take. I had to cut it into like very tiny little pieces, and we were giving her just small amounts. It was Traumadel, I think. It was a different opiate. And she, you know, the second day I called the doctors and said, this is, this, she's anxious. It's causing anxiety. So it was the doctors who recommend this is pure, has much less side effects. Um, it's just a much better medication. And she's on an the lowest dose you can give, it's very, very small. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I feel, I mean, eventually we'll have to be probably giving her more, but yeah. And do you have any experience with vaporized form of opium? Actually no, inhaling it? I haven't. Uh-uh. Okay. It's, an, it's the traditional way of taking opium, which of course has become very taboo oh. and something that is not supposed to be done, but <clears throat> in traditional Chinese opium dens, it was a very purified form of opium that was a pure vapor that was inhaled through the pipes. No smoke. No. Oh, they just like the CBD. Ah, yes. Well, we all have those apparatuses. So. But um, yeah, one of my good friends, Daniel Reed, who wrote the Tao of Health, Sex and Longevity, speaks uh, very highly of it. And in his memoir, he writes a lot about his experiences with opium as the only pain medication that is as he describes it, it's, it's basically completely safe and actually helps the body. The only downside to it is it is an addictive substance, but if taken through the vaporized form, it has tremendous health benefits beyond just pain relief. Yeah, that's so nice. Well, I'll have to look into it a little bit more. I know when, um, when we, I first experienced using it for pain myself on myself when I was in, um, and this was in tincture form 
when I was at the California School of Herbal Studies, I had a really, really bad pay, uh, toothache. And James Green had been making it with the students from the poppies that we were growing in the garden. I was a little chagrined, quite honestly, I hate to say, but it was like, really, you're making this at the herb school? You know, we're a legal entity and everything. But um, yeah, I trusted James, he's a very good herbalist. And so anyway, he gave me a little, a small bottle. And I woke up one day, I had a weekend of teaching, of intense teaching all day. It was with my, in, my apprentice program and I had a throbbing toothache and I tried a little clove oil, it didn't touch it. And so I remembered that opium poppy tincture. So I got it out and I took it the way I would take any medication. I took a little bit, didn't seem to help. I took a little bit more. I took a little bit more. I took a little more and I felt really great. I <laughs> took a nice nap, woke up, felt marvelous. But when I sat up to get up to go down and teach, it was like, oh my God, my body is still in bed. <laughs> it was like, and all during the day when I would talk, it was like there was somebody over here talking. So it was that appreciation <laughs> that it's quite well known for. Um, and it was like, oh yeah, this stuff is really powerful. It's really, powerful. <laughs> it really works. So yeah, it was a good teacher. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'll my... Could you talk some about your books? and the journey with writing and I guess when that first began for you? Well, I've always loved writing. In fact, you know, there was a time I probably thought I would be a writer. Um, well, writing herb books is not being a writer. You know, you're, you're not writing creatively. You're writing recipes and trying to think, keep things practical. It, it's, it somewhat dampens your creative writing skills, right? I don't think I could sit down and write creatively because I've written these factual books for so long. But anyway, um, so I always loved writing for certain. And the reason that I, I started writing a herb book, it was in 1990, I think, when I first started writing the, the woman's herb book, that was my first book, was because there, I had worked in communities of women and with a lot of women and had actually seen these herbs doing amazing things. And so there was a couple of good herb books. My friend Janine Pavardi Medvin had wrote Hygieia. It came out, I think, in the 1980s. And then Susan Weed had a wonderful series. I think at that time she had one, possibly two in her woman's books. Um, so there was, there was, but that was all. There wasn't any other herb books that I had come across that were addressing women's health specifically and not even a lot of other books addressing it. So I wanted to, um, you know, just share my experiences. That was really where it came again, just wanting to put together that I had seen these herbs work and that they could be used for this and that. And also the things that I didn't see them work for. You know, I wanted to be able to put that down too. So I wrote that book and um, and it really still remains my favorite book, you know, because I did, it was more creative writing. I was still, I, I wrote, and also because it was such a labor of love, right? I just, I put a lot of heart and soul into that book. Not that I didn't put it in the other books, but it's like your first baby, maybe, you know, it was unique and different. Um, yeah, and then after that, it was just, uh, what did I write after that? Oh, I had a whole, I had written a series of pamphlets before that, that were just an exercise for me. I'd written them really for myself and then I published them myself. And, and then, so my publisher story publication asked if I would create those into more booklet form. So I rewrote all of those. And then they started, that was right around the time when her book started selling. So they asked me to put it all into one big book form, which we, was called The Family Herbal. I really love that name for it. They eventually changed the name, I think because they thought it would sell more books. I'm not sure, but anyway, so yeah, that's kind of how it evolved. And then 
the other book that I wrote out of feeling there was a need was the men's herb book, you know, and I told my publishers, I actually asked to ask them that I wanted to write that book because there was so little information. And I thought, you know, really men herbalists need to start taking this up and writing men's books. And maybe if I write this book, other men herbalists will start, men herbalists will start to write it. It's not that men can't write about women's health or women can't write about men's health, but you can't write about it from a very personal, insightful way. You're writing about it, you know, intellectually, really. You're writing about it from your research and talking to men and stuff. And so, but um, I felt like there just needed to be more. There was Jim Green's excellent book. It's just, a, I love his book on men's health. And Stephen Buhner also wrote a couple of really good books on men's health. But really, there was so little other literature. So, I told my publishers, I said, you know, this book is not going to sell well. My other books have sold quite well. I said, it's not going to sell well, but I really want to do this book. And so they let me do it. And it hasn't sold well, but I'm still really proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sold fine, you know, but it hasn't sold like a bestseller or anything. Because, you know, men are still a little bit behind and being proactive about their health, about, um, you know, being self-empowered about it. It's changing, and especially among the younger generation. But, um, you know, when you look at men, any men in my generation or older, you'll find that they are, they are very few men in those, those groups who are looking at health issues, being proactive, realizing there were things they, that they personally could do to be healthier and that they had a say in their health, you know, so, um, and that's kind of what I wanted to address in this book, you know, that, hey, guess what, it's your body. <laughs> you get to make the decisions and there's a lot you can do. And yeah. Are there any other books forthcoming? Well, I've been wanting to write a book since I was 40 years old. Um, it's a novel. It's called Chili Verde and the Garlic Queens. Ooh. So it's written totally in my head. I just haven't sat down. It's based on the lives of four women herbalists that I know. So it's a composite. And it's their life as herbalists, but their search for the, you know, the Chili Verde man, the perfect green man, right? And it's, you know, it's their life as herbalists and the people that they worked with and their struggles as herbalists and their gifts, but also it's a romance. So it's a story, it's a, I call it the subtitle is a story of herbs, love and passion. Oh, please do that. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's a fabulous book, but I don't know that I'll ever get around to it. You know, I'm, I'm not in that passionate stage myself right now. You have to have a lot of passion to write about passion. Mm. We say you have to be yeah. a passionate teacher to teach impassionately, you know, you, you know, so I have to see if I can rouse that energy again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a bit subdued these days. Well, Rosemary, this has been so wonderful and I could sit here and talk to you all day, but I know you do have other things to tend to. Where can listeners, where should they go to learn more about you and your courses or whatever, wherever you want to point them? Thank you, Todd. Well, just to the science, to our website, the Science of Art and of Herbalism, I think it has all the information, you know, about what we're up to and the books and things. So yeah, that's a great place to go. And if they have any questions, they can just shoot them over there and I'm happy to answer them or Helen will. Okay, great. And... To finish off and to circle back around to where we began, as I indicated, you have inspired so many. And during this interview, you've mentioned your grandmother and Juliet, who have been major influences on you. Is there anyone else you would like to credit as having been a major influence oh, on the absolutely. direction of your life? 
Yeah, so, you know, some of the other elders are Norma Myers, who's a Canadian herbalist. I had the great good fortune to study with her and also to bring her to the California School of Herbal Studies. Tasha Tudor, who was another great elder who had an enormous influence on my life, a, a big influence. Um, and Adele Dawson, another of the elders. But I also have been inspired by a lot of my contemporaries, you know, like, and I don't even know where to begin because so many of the people who are my, around my age really, and we became such a strong community of, of friends and co-workers and, you know, just sharers of information. They, they inspired me, taught me, you know, I just love this herbal community. And I'm also inspired tremendously by the younger generation coming along. You know, they're bringing their own issues, they're bringing their own, their own, um, you know, their own crusade, crusades with them. They're, they are creating fabulous, fabulous products. I'm just like amazed. And yeah, so I do get a lot of inspiration from so many people in the community, but I would, I would say my elders when I was younger and still to this day really, really have inspired me, you know, and I'm grateful for those people who carried the teachings on when the spark was very dim and who lit the candle brightly so that we could all see it and carry it forth. So, yeah. Well said. Thank you so much for doing this today. It's Thank been so you, wonderful Todd. getting to know oh. you a bit. I enjoyed it too. It's a really interesting questions. Uh, thank you for that. Green blessings. And uh, I look forward to another time to chat. Thank you, Rosemary. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Rosemary Gladstar. For more about Rosemary, her courses, and books, visit scienceandartofherbalism.com. If you are interested in studying Western Herbal Medicine, the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned programs, including world's first study options combining Western Herbal Medicine with acupuncture and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in herbal medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture and Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you're using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, seek connection with and listen to the wisdom of elders.